This is the Intego Mac Podcast. The voice of Mac security. For Thursday, October 28th, 2021. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include our first takes on Apple's just-released operating systems and a look at the latest security patches. Could the new MacBook Pros have too much power for most users? And we'll remind you how to pick the right new Mac and how to set it up. Should you migrate or do a clean install? Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm really well. Have you updated everything yet? I, I'm in the process of getting everything in my home updated right now. Yep. You you are. You see, you and you mentioned this a few weeks ago. You used to be the guy who waited a couple of months. And now, because of all the security threats, you're updating a lot more quickly, <laughs> aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. After doing the, the research that I did recently into, you know, what stuff gets patched in the current versus the two previous operating systems. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely of the opinion that it's better to patch as soon as possible, basically, to get on the latest major new OS version. So Monterey is out. It's 12 gigabytes. And this, of course, is going to be a big problem for people who don't have very fast broadband. And I'm thinking back to a few years ago, my Victorian internet, which was at best 15 megabits down, and how long that would have taken to get it. I, I suppose there are probably still a handful of people out there that can only get dial-up internet. And I, I pity those people. I, I don't know how you survive anymore with multi-gig downloads and updates and everything like that. Well, it's not just that. The, the internet access is uh, an essential utility now. Here in the UK, you have to file your income tax online. There are all sorts of official documents. If you request them, it's all online. You can't go to a physical office to do these things. You can't even do them by mail anymore. And it is a bit of a problem for people in isolated areas that they're trying to figure out. I know there are some discussions about using satellite for small areas, but they do have a pretty, you know, they're moving pretty quickly on fiber. As we've discussed many times, I'm in a small village next to a farm and I have gigabit. Whereas I go a mile and a half to the next village, they don't, but they have fast ADSL. So it's still sufficient. But I'm, I'm just thinking 12 gigabits, even on fast ADSL. And, and then if the connection drops and you lose the download and you have to start over, it's really frustrating. I wish there was a way... Why are these updates so big? Wasn't last year's about eight? It's a very big difference. Yeah, uh, I, I don't remember what size it was last year, but I, I, I know that they have been progressively getting bigger over time. I've seen a lot of people talking about that. Uh, I think we even talked about that on the show not too long ago. We're at a place right now where we're once again at a transition point between two different processor architectures. So that means that, you know, every app basically is going to be a universal binary. It's going to have code for both Intel processors and for M1 processors. And that obviously adds a little bit of size to every single application. I just checked on my friend Rob Griffiths has a website called the Rob Observatory, and he has a full history of Mac OS and OS X release dates and rates. And Catalina was 4.9 gigabytes, but Big Sur was 12.18, and Monterey is 12.13. So there was a big jump, and that would have corresponded, as you say, to them moving to the new processors. But it's more than the double, which is surprising. I don't know. It does seem like there's possibly at least more that Apple could do to make these downloads a bit more efficient. I'm looking back. This is actually interesting to look back. In 2007, Leopard came out. It was the first universal binary release, and it was 2.15 gigabytes. 
Panther was 1.54. Jaguar, 1.03. Yes, I remember the days when uh, you used to be able to burn a a disc, a DVD, um, with the entire operating system installer and everything. You can't really do that anymore. Well, you used to be able to do it on a USB thumb drive, and I think you can't do that anymore either because of the way the installer works and the security issues. Oh, yeah. I haven't really looked into that in the past couple of years with with recent Macs uh, being able to update yeah. them. Certainly, you can still do that, I believe, on older Macs that you're like kind of hackintoshing. Although, unfortunately, there hasn't really been a good way to unofficially upgrade uh, Max to Big Sur or, or Monterey yet that I know of. There have been a couple of uh, people who have tried to put together hacks and ways to do that, um, to do those unofficial updates. We have a really popular article actually on the Intego Mac security blog that um, we we haven't really updated in a couple of years because with Big Sur's release... The one patch that was available to get the latest Mac OS on really old, unsupported hardware was no longer being updated anymore for Big Sur. So uh, we, we, we're kind of we're kind of stuck there unless you're willing to do a whole lot of tinkering. OK, in addition to Monterey, we also have iOS 15.1, watchOS 8.1 and more, HomePod, Apple TV, etc. There are a lot of security fixes in these updates, aren't there? Yeah, we'll actually have an article on the Intego Mac security blog that will detail some of the interesting updates. One thing that I wanted to point out, because I mentioned I recently gave a talk on this subject, and I thought it would be interesting to take a look at the three currently supported macOS versions and what got patched. Remember, if you're still using macOS Mojave, you're not getting any updates at all anymore. It's dead, and it will never get updates again. So here's what I found. There are approximately 51 updates altogether that apply to the three different macOS versions. And of those, there were 20 vulnerabilities that were patched for all three operating systems. So that's good. There were 24, though, that were patched only for macOS 12. There were five that were patched for Monterey and Big Sur. There was one that was patched for Monterey and Catalina, interestingly, and there was one that was only patched for Catalina. The biggest takeaway there is that of those 51 vulnerabilities, 50 of them were patched for Monterey. Um, and there, and presumably the one other that was only patched for Catalina only applies to Catalina, probably, and didn't you know, didn't apply to, uh, to Mac OS Monterey. So as I've been saying for a long time, if you want to make sure that you're getting the most updates and the most important updates, you have to be on the latest version of Mac OS, which in this case now is Mac OS Monterey. I notice in your article, you've embedded a tweet of a, a spreadsheet that you made. There were a number of updates to AppleScript. We don't see a lot of security updates to AppleScript, do we? Yeah, and, and, and these four vulnerabilities that um, were reported in AppleScript, uh, the impact for those was processing a maliciously crafted AppleScript binary may result in unexpected application termination 
or disclosure of process memory. So does that mean that malware could read like what you've just typed or what's in memory, that sort of thing? It could, yeah. It, theoretically, it's, it would be possible to read portions of memory, which means that anything that happens to be stored in memory it could be passwords, it could be, you know, keys, any kind of important thing could potentially be in memory. Um, and so they say that they fixed this. And they did fix this one for all three of the currently supported macOS versions, which is nice. There was also something interesting in the update to iOS 15.1, right? Yeah. What I, what I thought was interesting about this is that although there is nothing that Apple says has been actively exploited that was patched in 15.1, um, once again, it's, it's sort of unclear what's going on here. Because remember that we've talked on the show before about how iOS 14.8 had a fix for a particular vulnerability that had been leveraged by the Pegasus spyware. And how I mentioned that iOS 15 didn't seem to have ever gotten that update. Well, even in 15.1, Apple still doesn't name that CVE as something that has been patched. So I'm a bit puzzled. I don't, I don't know what exactly is going on here, whether... Apple didn't patch this, or maybe there was something about iOS 15 where this vulnerability just never was a problem, but why not say that they fixed it, right? I mean, you would think that they would want to encourage people to upgrade to iOS 15 by telling you that it's no longer vulnerable to Pegasus. Make sure you upgrade to the latest version, but they don't say that. So I'm a bit puzzled. And unfortunately, this is one of those things where because Apple just doesn't talk to anybody, <laughs> um, we may never really know the answer to this unless, of course, um, I can find a vulnerability researcher who can confirm whether or not 15 point one is still vulnerable. But this is the kind of thing that shouldn't be up to third party researchers to try to poke at Apple's operating systems from the outside to try to determine what's inside. Uh, this is something that Apple should be more transparent about. It's good that Apple is saying what CVEs, these vulnerability numbers, are being patched in each operating system release. But but there's a lot of things that they're just not telling us and won't tell us even when we ask privately. And that's very frustrating. Especially when it affects a vulnerability that's such high profile as the Pegasus. You would think that they would want to communicate more to reassure people that, you know, iPhones and iPads are safe. Okay, in local news, here's a story that I saw a couple days ago, and I found this interesting because I'm not sure how they're going to do this. The Guardian is telling us that UK phone networks are going to block scam calls from abroad. Providers agree to automatically bar calls that are made to look as if they come from British numbers. Now, we all get these scam calls, have, oh, this is Microsoft support, and they want to get, you know get your credit card number, whatever. And the numbers, when I get them here, they usually have like an 020 prefix, which is London. But you can tell from the accents that the people probably aren't from London. And the thing is, if it's easy to spoof a number, but is it possible for telephone companies to block numbers coming from abroad, even if this, according to this article, these are online calls, so calls made over computers, so IP phone calls that could go through a VPN and look like they're coming from the UK. I, I think it's a good idea, but they don't say anything in this article about how they're actually going to accomplish this technically. Right. And, and 
it would be interesting to see like how they're doing this technically. I don't know if they're actually going to reveal that information because um, otherwise people might find a way around it more easily. But I, I honestly suspect that there's probably a pretty easy way around um, this based on what they're saying. So now we're not experts on exactly what goes on behind the scenes at telcos. And so, you know, it's, it's it's possible that there are elements to this that we don't fully know just because we don't know those systems very well. But um, when they're talking about when they use the term blocking online calls from abroad, um, that does seem like they're talking about voice over IP. So um, that seems like it would be a little bit harder to really block because think about this. I mean, if you're using a VPN or some other technology that allows you to appear to be in a different geographic location from where you physically are, um, and you're using something that's like a voice over IP of calling mechanism, um, I don't see how they could determine whether that came from outside the UK or not. Um, so I'm a little bit suspicious that you know maybe this isn't going to work out as well as they think it will okay we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk about the new macs and monterey how to upgrade to monterey how to set up a new mac all the sort of stuff you need if you've got one of those new macbook pros on order protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego. World-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. So we're recording this on Wednesday the 27th, and I think the first MacBook Pros, M1 Pro, M1 Max were delivered yesterday. So I've been starting to see a lot on Twitter and on the news sites about well, unboxing videos, I mean, come on, unboxing videos are like so 1990s. But people doing benchmarks, people examining how efficient they are, how bad the notch is, which apps don't work well with the notch, all sorts of things. The one article that I found the most interesting was Jason Snell, who wrote for Macworld. And his article is entitled M1 Pro versus M1 Max, Why the Fastest MacBook Ever Might Be Overkill. The extra power of the M1 Max might not be worth the extra price. This is exactly what I was saying last week, that it seems to me that these computers, when they're really fast, are so fast that we don't do anything that needs that speed. The first thing that really surprised me that Apple didn't mention 
is that they're looking at the Geekbench 5 benchmarks. Geekbench is software that measures the power of a processor. It gives it a score. Last year's 13-inch MacBook Pro with an M1 processor, which is the same as my MacBook Air, gets a score of 1724. The 10-core MacBook Pro M1 Max gets a score of 1774. I'm going to say that again. Last year's Mac in single core gets 1724, and this year's M1 Pro Max gets 1774. So it is absolutely no faster, or it is 3% faster, in single core activity, which is most of what we do, right? Web browsing, email, everything is single core. Multi-core is only when you're doing processor in intensive the best example is always your rendering video, right? Because that's probably the most processor-intensive thing you can do. But this could be editing photos in the Photos app or a different app. This could be, you know, making a movie in iMovie or things like that. So multi-core does come in, but it's just not that often. And the article points out that you're probably not going to want to buy the 8-core CPU, which is the cheapest. You probably want to go for the 10-core. But whether you have 14, 16, or 32 graphic cores really depends on the type of work you're doing. And this is not the kind of computer where, you know, the old rationale used to be buy the best configuration you can afford right now to plan for the future. But it might not be true here because you can be paying a couple thousand dollars more for those extra graphics cores and memory for something you may never use in the lifetime of the computer. Yeah, well, I, this is the the thing that we we were talking about. It, it's sort of related to what I pointed out is that during the Apple event, they were showing these you know charts where they were like, "Here's the best PC you can buy and how it performs," and here's. Apple's M1 Pro and M1 Max, like at the same spot on the chart. And it was like, hmm, I, you're not doing a very good job of selling your M1 Max processors here. And, and I understand that, like, for a lot of common tasks, you're you're not going to see very much difference. Um, th there are a couple of differences between the Pro and the Max. One of those is that with the Max, you can have a lot more RAM, a lot more memory in your system than you can with the previous, you know, with either M1 Pro or the plain old M1, right? In addition to having more RAM, you get better bandwidth between the RAM and the processor as well. Right. But unless you know you need a lot of RAM, you probably don't because, you know, RAM is one of those things like it used to be that you just needed tons and tons of RAM as much as you could get the, you know, the more, the better. And we're kind of at a point now where with macOS memory management is a lot, a lot better than it used to be. And you don't necessarily need as much RAM as you used to for a lot of the same kind of tasks. Now that's not to say, you know, if, if you so if you have uh, the M1 the original M1 processor you could get 16 gigs of RAM with that it, and and honestly 16 is probably sufficient for almost anybody you can probably get away with eight especially if you're doing things like web browsing and checking email and not a whole lot else eight is totally fine um, if you're doing you know more intensive things then yeah you might need a little bit better processor a little bit more memory but honestly. Um, you know, the MacBook Air works great for me with an M1 processor and 16 gigs of RAM. And I do some, you know, work with video and, and audio and, and I don't really have a problem with it at all. Yeah. One of the good examples in this article is media encoding and decoding, which again, this is 
This is where the processor works the hardest, right? And so uh, Jason compares the time for a Final Cut export with the 14-inch MacBook Pro M1 Max versus the M1 Pro. The export time for the M1 Max is 7.69 in seconds and 11.58 for the M1 Pro. So that's a big difference. But what he points out is both chips offer some special tools for media pros, including dedicated media encoding and decoding space on their chips. That's important to know that when you're encoding and decoding video now, it's not so much the processor that's doing it, it's a special processor. The M1 Pro, as he says, has a custom designed element for ProRes encoding and decoding. So this is, again, it's not the CPU, it's a special processor. The M1 Max has two of those special processors. So if you're not doing ProRes encoding and decoding, in particularly 8K and whatever, you don't need the difference between the Pro and the Max. The difference is, I, as I said last week, these are real MacBook Pros for pros, unlike the MacBook Pro, which is just the slightly better MacBook. Did you hear the rumor that um, Intel is trying to woo Apple back? <laughs> really? With these really snarky ads that they've been running about how much better their processors are? Yeah. Well, there, there were, so there were actually two bits of, of news about this that both came out uh, this, on the same day this week, I believe. Um, one of them is not actually a rumor. The, in the Intel CEO actually said in an interview that it's his job to win Apple back. Um, and I, I thought the same thing that you did. That's sort of amusing given um, you know Intel's recent marketing push and attacking Apple and attacking Macs and saying they're trash and why would you want to use one of those things and showing you know supposed Apple users using what are actually in the commercial fake Macs. <laughs> uh, and and not being able to tell the difference between a PC and a Mac. I'm like, oh, come on, Intel. You can do better than this. And they even hired Justin Long, I think, for some of those ads. The guy who was the I'm a Mac guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the Intel CEO is saying one thing. We're trying to get Apple back. The marketing side, however, is like, yeah, but we still got to sell processors in the meantime. So <laughs> don't buy a Mac. Um, but there, on the same day, though, there was a leaked, you know, supposed benchmark showing that Intel's forthcoming 12th gen Alder Lake processor is supposedly going to beat Apple's M1 Max in certain performance benchmarks anyway. Uh, so we'll see about that. You know, with this happening to be the same time that the Intel CEO was saying that he was trying to win Apple back. It seems a little suspicious that that leak came out at the same time, but yeah, we'll see. Well, it's good timing, but it's important to point out that Intel's chips don't have that special processor for ProRes video encoding and decoding. And if you're a pro doing this sort of video work, you want that processor. You want the specific things. A processor is no longer just a processor. It's a processor with a bunch of special processors connected to it. Will it have the same bandwidth as the M1 Pro and the M1 Max? If you're using it for video, clearly the Mac is going to be preferable if you're doing ProRes video. Well, one of the big differences between you know the, the Intel-based Macs and the Apple Silicon-based Macs is that with M1, you've got an SOC. You've got the whole entire system on one chip, right? Where you have, you know, with the Intel Macs, you had a whole bunch of disparate parts that were all sort of working together through the motherboard. And there, there's a lot more 
um, I guess latency may be the word that I'm looking for between different components, right? It takes time for all the different things to communicate with each other. And when you've got an SOC, everything is right there talking to itself without nearly as much latency as you would have if you had a different processor that had to interact with other components like you do on every Intel system. So Apple really actually has a lot of advantages and will continue to have advantages, you know, far into the future, you know, because of having this integrated design where everything is all together. Okay, we want to just highlight a couple of articles on the Intego Mac Security blog. How to choose the right Mac for your use case, which is going to go through the different Macs available and suggest which one is good for you. You know, they're still selling the Mac Pro at, what is it, $59.99? And that's a bit long in the teeth. And I know we're going to see sometime next year, we're going to see an update to that. And I guess the processor is going to be the M1 Pro Max Plus or something. But it's weird. It's it's they always keep selling these older computers for a long time, like the previous Mac Pro. They kept selling it for years just to be able to have something in the catalog. Anyway, I I discuss in the article the pros and cons of desktops and laptops and what your current options are. And if you're getting a new Mac, you should really check out my article, Setting Up a New Mac, Should You Migrate or Do a Clean Installation? People like to do clean installations every few years because if you install a lot of apps and then remove them, there's a lot of files that get installed and it just like builds up cruft. And when you migrate, you move all of that over. Everything that's in your home folder gets carried over. So every few years, I find it a good idea to wipe the Mac clean. You, you back it up at least twice onto an external drive. You install it new, and then you copy things over from the home folder. You re-download all your apps, and yes, you'll have to enter your serial numbers, and you'll have to, if you use any apps that have activation, you'll have to remember to deactivate them and reactivate them on the new Mac. It's a bit of a headache, but it's a good way to clear out a lot of stuff on your Mac. Yeah, this is kind of one of those age-old debates. Like when when you're doing a big move from one operating system to another, uh, you know, especially back in the day when you used to get these DVD installers, um, you know, you'd want to uh, you'd be prompted whether you wanted to upgrade or whether you wanted to do a clean ins- installation, um, even on an existing Mac if you were booting up from an external drive. Um, and um, so this is something people have debated about for years. There's there's one of the big advantages, really, of starting clean and fresh is that, exactly as you say, you don't have that cruft. There's often you know, older software components that are just kind of sticking around in your system and that you don't need anymore that aren't going to do any good for you. Maybe you had some older hardware, you don't need to support that and you don't need additional code kind of cluttering up and making your system potentially less stable. So it's better to often to just start from scratch. Um, So really, when you get a new Mac, if you just choose not to migrate anything, you can effectively have a a clean install um, because you've got the direct from factory installation. You just need to be aware that there are some some pros and cons. So this article is a good way to, to identify some of that. Okay, one final tip. We have an article, How to Securely Dispose of Your Old Mac, and I've updated it because there's a really interesting new feature in Monterey. Uh, You may know that on your iPhone or iPad, you can go into the settings and you can choose Erase All Content in Settings. And this is great because if you're selling your Mac or giving it to someone else, you can wipe it clean. They've added this to Monterey. It's kind of hard to find because you only see it when you open System Preferences, then go into the System Preferences menu. You don't see it anyplace else. But if you 
do this, you'll sign out of your Apple ID, your Touch ID will be erased, your accessories, your Bluetooth accessories will be unpaired, uh, your Apple Wallet will be emptied, and Find My and the activation lock will be turned off, which is really good. In my article, I have 10 steps for preparing a, a Mac for disposal, and this takes out about five of them. So if you do get a new Mac and you plan to dispose of your old one, before you do it, upgrade it to Monterey and then do this erase. So go through the upgrade process once just to get this feature on your new Mac. Exactly, yeah, and this is such a cool thing. I'm super happy that Apple finally brought this technology to the Mac. I remember, you know, for years, it's been a problem that, you know, back when iTunes was a Mac app still, um, that was one of the things that always frustrated me was having to like deregister, deauthorize that computer in iTunes. And you that was something that everybody forgot to do. Nobody ever remembered to deregister that computer before they got rid of it. And so it was always using up one of your, what it was at five computers that you could have associated with your iTunes account at the time. Um, and so I've, I've thought for a very long time, Apple's needed to have one simple way to just presto, it's all done. And it's, so it's, it's great to see that Apple has finally added this to Mac OS. Nice job, Apple. My guess is the reason that they did this is more because of find my in the activation lock, which mean that even if you send something into Apple as a trade-in, they make it very clear you have to turn off Find My and remove the activation lock, otherwise they'll send it back. So now they have a way of ensuring that this is easier, that it doesn't that people don't need to go through a whole bunch of steps to be able to do this. And and that's really important. Okay, that's enough for today. We'll be back next week. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac Security, with your hosts Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>